Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. have that solved yeah I don't know why but the the player that gets the audio onto the internet wasn't seeing everything that it's supposed to see so good morning here on a Thursday Mike McNamara Mike McNamara with you on a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio right here on your home for it the All Warrior Radio Network uh, the Mensa Brothers will join me here shortly. Actually, we just finished recording that 10 minutes ago. Not even 10 minutes ago, probably 7 minutes ago. Um, yeah, so what you're going to hear us talk about are is uh, much in the news is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, um, I believe his Article 32 hearing uh, begins today. And um, so you're going to hear... Um, them I ask it and so uh, here's what spawns this I had this experience when when I came back from Iraq in 2000 and at the end of 2004 at the beginning of 2005 I, I was there for almost a year and um, I get home and I'm hearing um, and I'm not even going to discuss the issue the, the story but um, the story essentially was an incident and I had read the, investi- the statements of the investigation. And in my opinion, 
um, there's killing in combat, and then there's people that kill outside of, of that. And this was clearly outside of that. And um, yet when I heard the American media talk about it, I was I was stunned. I was like, what in the hell are they doing? I mean, they don't even understand. Uh, they don't even understand what they're talking about. But it was being used as a political weapon. And um, and so, yeah, and so, and so it went. And so Lieutenant Colonel Scheller's court-martial um, will follow that same track. It won't be about what's, uh, it won't be about good order and discipline, uh, at least the way the media will treat it. It will simply be furthering their political agendas and they will kick it to the curb when they are done with it or when it doesn't meet their needs anymore. So um, so I asked them about that. Two questions. Is it appropriate? And your thoughts on that carnival that will surround it. We then talk about um, uh, yesterday was the 246th birthday of the United States Navy. So if you're a veteran of the Navy... Um, happy birthday to everybody. And then, uh, so we'll talk about that. The greatest feats, you know, I asked, what is the greatest feat the United States Navy has pulled off? And so everybody answers it in their own way. You're going to hear that. And then we actually go around a second time. Um, and trust me, there's no short, there's no shortage of great feats that the American Navy has pulled off. Uh, and then uh, I asked them about, you know, we did a, a program yesterday devoted to the Navy's investigation of the USS Somerset and its role in the deaths of eight Marines and one sailor uh, when an Amtrak sank off the coast of San Clemente Clement Island that belonged to the 15th Mew. So normally what happens is that we'll do that stuff and then a lot of people listen to it and they'll reach out and they'll want to talk about it. And... um and so when that happens, um, you have a lot of very, very interesting conversations. And I'm sure for them, like me, uh, yesterday was no exception to that. And, um, and so wondered if they had any additional thoughts on that, um, on our discussion that happened yesterday. So we'll talk about that. And then, as always... Uh, we talk about what are you reading these days. So, um, yeah, so that is, uh, that will be the uh, the show that you'll hear. Uh, I'll just do the news headlines real quick and then we'll, we'll get to that. So, uh, good morning on, uh, good morning on this Thursday morning, the 14th day of October, if you can believe that. Yeah, it's hard for me to believe that October is, is already there. So, on that note, good morning to you. The United States Marine Corps Band uh, makes this morning official for us. Good morning.
And this is uh, dedicated to the United States Navy on uh, a day late um, from uh, the one of the the other department of the Navy, the Marine Corps. Happy birthday. Betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Winning. Yeah, we don't talk about it too much. As a nation, we're more interested in making sure that it's fair for everybody than winning anymore. Pretty interesting, right? Charter schools used to be the rage. Now, got to look at, uh, you know, we're using, you know, assets to reward a small segment of our population. And we certainly can't do that because we're disenfranchising others. So, yeah, no more charter schools. How about that? The Great Migration to um, to private education will commence. And then you're going to see, uh, let me tell you, th- this fight over school boards has been a long time in coming, right? 
the people that educate our kids have been doing this for a long time. And, and, and now what you have is you have a generation that have been um, educated in these uh, in our schools. And they're, much of what they get taught is garbage. Right? And I, I talk about it in post-traumatic winning. You look at young people and their inability to cope. Right? The world that they're prepared for is a world that asks them about their feelings all the time. A world in which they're never culpable. It's a teacher's fault, the coach's fault, or the school's fault. Right? That's the world that they grow up in. That's their prism. They look through that prism. And then all of a sudden the world rolls on them. And they're like, what's going on here? Where are all the people that are supposed to care about the way I feel? Where is it, you know, that if I try hard, that's good enough? What do you mean that doesn't exist? So this fight over our school system has been a long time coming. And it's not going to be over soon. Not going to be over soon because it's, it's reached a point where Americans are fed up with it. And again, patient Americans who heretofore haven't said a whole lot, I've had enough of it. It's going to be interesting. You know, schools, school districts and whatnot have uh, historically, you know, those races, you know, not that much attention. I think, I mean, that's all that's going to change in a big way. In a big way. So let me get to the weather. Currently, mostly sunny and 74 in Quantico. Sunny and 76 at Marine Corps Air Station, Cherry Point. Sunny and 57 in 29 Palms, so still cold in Southern California. Sunny and 58 at Camp Pendleton. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy in 72. Okinawa, dark cloudy in 80. In the Philippines, in Manila, it is dark, raining in 80 degrees. And in Darwin, dark cloudy in 82. Currently at the home of All Marine Radio, it is fair in 53. Looking for a high of 73 degrees today. And then we're supposed to see 86 degrees tomorrow, 83 on Saturday, 72 on Sunday, and 69 on Monday with a 12% chance of rain. What the hell? Yep. Uh, That is a look at your weather. So uh, go ahead and uh, check check some news headlines here very quickly, and then the Mensa Brothers will join me. Um, Top story in uh in stars and stripes this morning is um veterans increasingly targets of extremist recruiting experts tell a house panel republicans blast hearing as stigmatizing vets so again rarely an effort to get to the truth constantly an effort to political to politicize any um, any issue that somebody could make hay out of. Uh, on the right side of Stars and Stripes is a uh, is a Stars and Stripes story. Retired Marine Colonel. It's kind of funny uh, because it's about Grant. Yeah, <laughs> it's about Grant Newsom. Quote, make it clear to the Chinese leaders that they will lose everything if they start a war over Taiwan. So Grant making making news headlines around the world. Congratulations to him. 
Yeah. So that in the news today uh, in Stars and Stripes. Idaho, Idaho, here's a funny one. Idaho Senator wishes Navy a happy birthday with a photo of a Chinese-made warship. <laughs> ah. Unbelievable. All right, so that's in, uh, that's in Stars of Strike. Top, top headline in the Wall Street Journal is Boeing runs into trouble with new Dreamliner defect. Boeing. Uh, interesting story. Microsoft folds LinkedIn social media service in China. LinkedIn said it would replace its Chinese service, which restricts some content to comply with local government demands with a job board service lacking social media features. Um, the other story that's interesting, and again, this is um, it's painful. A winter of giant gas bills is coming. According to the Energy Information Administration, nearly half of U.S. households that warm their homes with mainly natural gas can expect an average 30% increase on their bill compared to last year. So, yeah, break out your, uh, break out your cold weather gear, sports fans. Again, I mean, this is, uh, it's stunning to watch the United States behave like a third world country. Right. This 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 ridiculous attempt to embrace other forms of energy at the exclusion of those mainstays when what you're trying to embrace is immature is immature and can't supply what you need. Like this was hard to this like this was hard to predict, yay? What in the hell is that? Why do I hear Jeff Kenny in my head? Oh, I know why. <laughs> I know why. Um, anyhow. The um next story. Uh in the New York Times. Top stories. Lurching between crisis and complacency. Was this our last COVID surge? Rising immunity and modest changes in behavior may explain why new recorded cases in the U.S. have declined more than 40% since August. But scientists say, oh, hey, don't pay any attention to that. Right? Yeah, the 14-day change in the United States is COVID cases down 22%. The seven-day change in the world, I'm sorry, the 14-day change in the world is <clears throat> down 14%. Other couple, couple other headlines. Beirut rocket rocked by the worst sectarian fighting in years. So... The... um. So that in the news, that's the New York Times. Uh, top story in U USNI news is report to Congress on the Arctic. Sale of the last conventional supercarrier deals a final blow to museum hopes. And this talks about 
you know, San Diego has um, the Midway. New York City has the Intrepid. Um, uh, does San Francisco have one? I'm not sure if San Francisco. I, is it the Enterprise someplace? I think so. But not too much other news in uh, in USNI News today. Uh, the the court martial, the Article 32 hearing of Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, I believe, takes place today. I saw some reporting in the news this morning. All right, so that's going on today. Otherwise, nothing new to report from Marine Corps Times. Top five stories in early bird look like this today. And then the Mensa brothers will join me. Number one, in Afghanistan, an Afghan evacuation flight was almost hijacked, the Air Force reveals. Unbelievable. Written by Tara Kopp, the State Department estimates that a couple thousand additional evacuees have been able to depart Afghanistan since August 31st as a rare pairing of Biden administration staff and private organizations try to finish the work of the largest, most chaotic, and most dangerous emergency airlift in U.S. history. It talks about 100 private groups, many of them run by Afghan veterans, trying to help get people out. A signature image of the chaotic 17-day evacuation of Hamid Karzai International Airport was a departing C-17 mobbed by Afghans who hung on as it took off. But other aircraft in similar straits that day, Air Force officials revealed in a statement released on Wednesday, two HC-130J Combat King II aircraft on the ramp were about to be swarmed when they took off on a sliver of remaining runway with seconds to spare. They were airborne, skimming just 10 feet above the crowd. Days later, U.S. forces holding the airport stopped the five people aboard a commercial airliner. They intended to hijack the aircraft, the Air Force also said. So, the Air Force, talking about their experience in Kabul. Number two, Marine officer who posted videos criticizing General Milley, other military leaders, faces a court-martial. Um, so, again, the carnival that will surround Lieutenant Colonel Scheller begins. Number three, combined Russian and Chinese military power will approach but not exceed the United States, according to a report. The Sino-Russian relationship will continue to strengthen due to the con- due to the continuation of U.S. policies towards those two nations, and that, quote, aggregate Chinese and Russian power will continue to approach but not exceed U.S. power through 2022, according to a new RAND report. Well, what about the U.S. and its allies? Yeah, Russia, not so much, right? Remember, their economy is the size of the Canadian economy. Russia fakes it, right? And Putin is the master of faking it. Um, Pentagon arms chief, Pentagon's arms sales chief resigns as Biden administration faces decision on transfer policy. What's that about? The director of the Pentagon Agency 
in charge of foreign military sales is stepping down after 15 months in the role. Defense Security Cooperation Agency Director Heidi Grant will be succeeded on November 7th by Deputy Director Jed Royal on an acting basis the agency announced on Wednesday. Wednesday. Grant, a longtime Air Force official and was the first civilian to run the DSCA since it was created in 1998, is retiring after 32 years in government. Speaking on a panel at the at the Association of the U.S. Army's annual meeting, Grant voiced frustration with a year with a with a years old U.S. decision not to sell drones to the United Arab Emirates and other Mideast allies, which allowed China to sell them intelligence, surveillance, and rec- reconnaissance drones instead. That's why a strategic competitor transferred that technology and has a significant footprint in training bases for unmanned ISR, Grant said. It would have been us. We could have been there. We could have been training, advising, and have access to all of that. Quote, we have to look at this competition, right? We have to look at this and say, if we're not there, our strategic competition is going to fill the void, China. Is that riskier than transferring high-end technology, she said. I'm not going to get into that because there's a lot of great policy people way above me that are making those calls, she said. You sometimes question, why is the U.S. going to transfer technology? Well, the other choice is, do you want your strategic competitor there? So, therein lies the rub, right? Number five, Fed's investigation. Fed's investigating another Navy bribery scandal. This is the Navy Times, written by... Jeff Zulowitz, a U.S. Navy official in charge of port services contracts for the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, has admitted to taking tens of thousands of dollars in bribes from the owner of a company providing those services, according to recently unsealed court documents of a probe that carries stark similarities to the Navy's Fat Leonard scandal. This is amazing, right? Revelations around the case, first reported by the Washington Post, were laid bare last week with the unsealing of an arrest warrant for Frank Referachi, the CEO of Multinational Logistics Services, MLS, a company that has received more than $100 million in contracts to, to service U.S. ships in port since 2013. Referachi, a U.S. citizen who lives in Italy and the United Arab Emirates, was arrested in an unidentified country September 27th at the request of U.S. government. Quote, the bribes were solicited and Referaci corruptly gave, offered, and promised those things of value as part of a course of conduct of favors and gifts flowing to Navy officials in exchange for a pattern of official acts favorable to Referaci and MLS, the warrant states. Wow. Your United States Navy that turned 246 years old yesterday. Again. The same scandal again. What the hell, man? Uh, Overseas operation? China. Amid tensions with the U.S., military drills and flights were needed to defend Taiwan. What? China blamed actions by Taiwan's independence-leaning democracy elected, democratically elected government and its relations with external forces for heightening tensions. 
China, man. What a fucking joke. Um, this is interesting, okay, in light of the previous story, okay? This is a Bloomberg story. Headline, U.S., quote, Philippines, I'm sorry, U.S., comma, Philippines, I returned to full military drills in 2022. What? Let me just tell you, this is huge because the Philippines, if the United States is in the Philippines, China is screwed. Okay? China is screwed. Subheadline, America wants to increase complexity and scope of the exercise it does with the Philippines. The Philippines see, quote, like-minded countries rejoining the drills. The U.S. and the Philippines are planning to return to full-scale military drills in 2022 after two years and will invite Australia and the U.K. as observers in another sign of the Biden administration's push to deepen ties in the Indo-Pacific and counter China's assertiveness. America wants to increase the complexity and scope of the military exercise with the Philippines. Blah, 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 blah. The UK, Australia, and Japan are among the, quote, like-minded countries that will rejoin the drills as observers. And I would think down the road, they would join them as participants. So how does this square, right? Earlier in his term, Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte, Grant taught me how to say his name, wanted to end military exercises with the U.S. as he sought to build ties with China. The drills were canceled in 2020 and scaled down this year due to the pandemic. In recent months, however, the Philippines has been moving back towards its longtime alliance with the United States amid tensions with Beijing over the South China Sea. So... Interesting. Interesting. All right. That'll do it. So, without further ado, the Mensa brothers joined me this morning. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the United States Navy. And uh, actually, we're going to talk about a series of things. The first thing is, um, again, the carnival that will surround... Uh, the Article 32 today, and then ultimately, I assume, the court-martial or those proceedings, whatever happens, uh, that surround Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, their thoughts on two specific questions. One, are those proceedings appropriate? And two, what do you expect relative to the carnival? The next one is um, we talk about the the greatest feats of the United States Navy. And as always, they're interesting. Um, I think you'll enjoy that. And then the third thing we talk about is um, residual thoughts on yesterday's conversation about the USS Somerset, the Navy's investigation. Normally what happens to each one of us is, you know, we have people that listen to us, that contact us, that bring up different points, and you have a chance to reflect on it. And so we'll we talk about that. And then, as always, um, the favorite, and that is, um, what are you reading? So, without further ado, the Mensa Brothers. Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only 
on Warrior Radio Network. Angry music for angry people. But we're not angry today. We're happy today because it's the happy birthday. Well, really the day after the birthday of the American Navy. And so a happy birthday to all you sailors out there. And for those of us who share their naval tradition on occasion and are part of the Department of the Navy, and we all know which part of the department we are. We're the men's department, just so, just for the record. right? Not that there's anything wrong with any of the other departments, but we know who we are. Right? And uh, one, of the great, one of the great lines of, uh, of Marine Corps shit-talking is that one. Um, back when back when we used to do such things as use like genders like gender pronouns like that, but anyway, um, the 246th birthday of the Navy uh, happened yesterday. So um, uh, joining me is a graduate of the uh, United States Naval Academy, the United States Navy's premier academic institution. Well, I don't know. Would Monterey be, what would you say would be the premier academic institution? Well, I know what Will would say. Um, no, I'm, I'm a graduate of both. Monterey is much more academic. Oh, so your, your pedigree is beyond question. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I am a graduate of the Naval Postgraduate School. Did you get to the Naval War College? No, I did not. <laughs> did not. Unbelievable. Yeah. But, well, I'm not sure that the Navy and war belong in the same sentence. So. Well, well, we're going to dispute that here. At least historically, you could uh, make the case that they used yeah, to be no, able to. I, I don't disagree with that. All right. So Will joins us from Kansas City. Tim Lynch joins us from McAllen, Texas. Tim, how are you? Doing fine. Thanks, Mac. Doing fine. Nice, beautiful day in McAllen. It just be 95 today, not 100. All right. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. It's cool enough here on the West Coast. Um, and joining us from the West Coast is uh, Jeffrey Kenny. Jeffrey, good morning. How are you? Good. I'm good, Mac. And I forgot to ask uh, if I could mention later on uh, Captain Sesher, guy who got uh, killed in 2006 from uh, my organization of advisors there in uh, in Iraq. Sure, sure. The um, you know, this is I didn't put this on the agenda, but um, I think people look to us for guidance, and I and. And I don't know what kind of people that would actually be that would look to us for guidance, but some do. Those poor bastards. <laughs> I know. Uh, that's that's alarming. I know. That's bad. <laughs> um, but I was uh, I've been working on my studio the last few days, and I finally got it finished last night. And so I had the news on this morning, and I have it muted, but I'm watching the scrollers and stuff like that. And Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, evidently. Uh, he is court martial is going to begin. Uh, I don't know if it's his Article Thirty Two or the actual court, um, but the bloviating crazy shit that was on the news is astounding, absolutely astounding, you know. And um, so I just. Uh, I wanted to get a quick comment. I mean, what people, what you're going to see this thing turned into, the circus event that you're going to see his court-martial for essentially making threats and not not for his comments on Afghanistan, um, it's going to turn, it's going to make, 
most county fairs look like tame and non-existent. This thing will will get turned into a carnival beyond all other carnivals. And so, um, but again, will is his court martial um, appropriate? And do you see this getting turned yeah, into something? Yeah, his court martial is absolutely appropriate. And I saw an article sometime this week where his defense counsel is in the process of negotiating a deal. And the defense counsel is, you know, he's trying to frame the argument. He's saying he hopes that uh, that he can get it done and get him a letter of reprimand. Um, you know, this is, it's like Cindy Sheehan. Remember her son got killed and she was out there protesting yeah. President Bush and everyone was all about her until it didn't matter anymore. And then she was just another, you know, used Kleenex that got thrown away on the side of the road. And so all these people that are glomming onto Scheller, um, they're not doing it because they give a shit about Scheller, they have different agenda. And I don't even think they give a shit about his original point of accountability in Afghanistan. Because if they did that, if they cared about that, they would have been working on it more than for the last 30 days. So Scheller has got a lawyer and the lawyer is not an idiot, apparently. And the lawyer is working to get the guy a deal. And I can't believe that the court's going to start. So it's got to be the Article 32. Right. Um, and that'll come out. And then they'll do he'll get the deal and they're going to beg plead on their knees to keep him out of jail so timmy your thoughts on on this is it appropriate and any thoughts on the carnival that's about to ensue yeah the of course it's appropriate like like we have said from the very beginning of this story any communication after that first video was was hazardous to his health, hazardous to the point he was trying to make, and and was not going to be pr productive. I, like you, Mac, am more concerned about the individual because he's he is he has got the weight of the world on his shoulders right now, and he's got no way of deflecting the blame in this thing. It, you you could have compared his treatment had he shut up after the first video. Compare and contrast that with the behavior of General Miley, which which was very questionable in some circumstances that we now know, and you could have had a Dreyfus Affair type of thing going on, where where this kid stood up and sounded like Ali North uh, uh, to Congress, which which we watched in the Kadena Oak Club at like six o'clock in the morning. We were so fascinated about that shit. That was amazing, but he can't do that now. He's not capable of that, and I'm um, uh, I'm concerned about him. You know, you, you hate to see this, but uh, it's this this is a difficult situation. He has not and he stopped digging finally, but he didn't stop digging soon enough. Got it. Jeff, uh, is it appropriate? And your thoughts on the carnival that is about to ensue? Yeah, it is, it is appropriate. I mean, he after his first uh, you know, his first video he put out, he uh, he delved in a territory that uh, you can't tolerate in the military, no matter what, you know, and, uh, and it's exacerbated by the misbehavior of those generals and the secretary of defense who are you know, testifying. And, uh, you know, and I, when I say it's exacerbated, I mean the carnival that you're talking about, Mac, right. is going to be exacerbated by the compare and contrast. A lot of, uh, you know, you're going to see people like Dakota Meyer and, uh, you know, a bunch of 
you know, the seals who are running for office, you know, ex seals are running for, they're going to use it. And uh, so that's going to be kind of a hard thing. The Marine Corps just sticks to rules and professionalism. And, uh, and again, this guy will probably get, uh, if he just, uh, he, he made dumb threats and he said stupid things about my generation is going to take over. That is the most, that right there pissed me off. You know, I hate that generation bullshit and, uh, you know, and all this stuff. And uh, so, you know, I feel for the guy and I admire the, the first thing he did, but uh, he should have shut up after that, because uh, after that, you're you're really you're going against good order and discipline. Um, I have this to say about that. Um, my hope. And, and I just want you on the three of you to appreciate this little piece of art that I'm going to give you right now, okay? All right. Um, I hope, because we're all part of the Department of the Navy, okay? And we're going to talk about the Navy here in a second. Um, in keeping with the discipline or lack thereof that seems to be about to be meted to the um, people involved in the USS Somerset investigation, that in keeping with that rigorous discipline, right, which is essentially non-existent, that administrative action, that Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, who is not a participant in the death of nine people, would be treated in a similar vein. And therefore, that we somehow or other can figure out a way to thread this needle, um, to uh, maybe have him stand up in public and apologize for what he did and, and, and take responsibility. And then we can use that as a pretense for um, continuing to support him in his retirement uh, to include his family, which has, uh, I think, unique challenges. So, you, you know, the one thing, I, the one thing I want to add that I think it's important is that we know the members in his change of command quite well, and we know we can uh, we can deduce from knowing these people so well how he's being treated, and there is zero chance that there's a vindictive general just above him wanting to to put this guy in the brig. We know that's not true. Um, and I and I just wanted to leave it at, at at that. I the one thing I am comfortable with are the general officers directly above him in that chain of command because no, they're they're all stars. Right, and if we, you know, not that they would ever beg him, right? No, but no, I'm no. sure they were they were imploring him, shut your yap, okay, so we can help you, because you're on a path here, in order for us to, you know to maintain good order and discipline, right? You're on a path for us to have to hammer the shit out of you, as Will has pointed out. But uh, today, it, I want to talk about a little bit of uh, history. And, um, and that is the single greatest feat of arms by the American Navy on the anniversary of its 246th birth. Um, so... I don't know that Jeff would ever copy anybody, but in the, in the spirit of the Nightingale, Jeffrey, um, mm -hmm. what what say ye about the greatest achievement of arms uh, in the history of the United States Navy? Yeah, and like all good Marine, you know, Marines, I enjoy breaking it off in the Navy's ass <laughs> as much as possible. However, I got to say, there's so many. Um, that it's a, uh, you know, it's a challenging thing. However, the one that, and I'm glad you let me go first, because uh, I would say Midway, 
And here's why. We were losing the war up to that point. And in five minutes, roughly, based on dedication, based on skill, and in large part based on sheer good fortune, the U.S. Navy turned the war around and saved the world, actually, saved the world. Because uh, if we had had to do a negotiated thing with the Japanese, uh, you know, it would have been horrific. And it would probably have, you know, reverberated over to the Eastern Pacific and uh, or the Eastern theater of the war, you know, over at the Western theater of the war, I'm sorry, over in Europe. And uh, we would end up having to, to negotiate with two of the most uh, evil forces ever to be arrayed against the planet. So th- th- that five minutes at Midway, which is based on a lot of pre-work and dedication, uh, you know, not just uh, the aviation community, the Navy, but also the surface Navy and also the, uh, the submarine, uh, you know, service in the Navy. And, uh, you know, I, so I got to say that's the one. But in, in uh, when you said we were going to do this, you put that, you know, the, the text out about that. I went through stuff and there's so many incredible stories of, uh, you know, of heroism and dedication with the Navy, even during peacetime, because what they do is inherently dangerous. And, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, it, it's hard to pick. But I have to say, decisive to the world, the Battle of Midway in, uh, in 1940, June of 1942. Wow. Wow. Well done. Tim, how about you? As a former as a former member of the United States Navy, yeah, I wanted to go a little bit in history because this ties directly into what I was talking <laughs> to the uh, the the Theodore Roosevelt trilogy that that I was reading this summer, and I talked about how when the Secretary of the Navy went on his annual summer vacation in eighteen eighty nine, excuse me, yeah, eighteen ninety eight, excuse me, um, that as soon as his train left the station, Theodore Roosevelt was cabling naval ships, directing them to to muster getting them coal, spent the entire budget coaling up the fleet, which put Admiral Dewey in the position he was in on uh, um, when he attacked the Spanish feet, uh, fleet in Manila on May 1st. And that that attack, in which it took two hours to destroy the, the, the Spanish fleet, not not five minutes, due to the, uh, due to the type of uh, armament at the time, that was masterfully done. He utilized our, our State Department assets in Manila to tell him to come in through the South Channel, not the North Channel, which was mined. The South Channel was ineffectively mined. They set off two mines, but they were too deep to hurt the ships. The shore battery saw them coming in. It didn't matter because he set up his uh, his his line of battle and went and raked the entire Spanish fleet with his port side guns, turned around, came back with his starboard side guns. The only Spanish that did not capitulate that time were in Quebec, and the Marines landed the next day and cleared them out. It was a masterful stroke of using using intelligence coming from an uninspected area, applying devastating firepower, and it, and it basically ended the Spanish domination in the Pacific or any 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 uh, possessions they might have had. So I I give that one as as a big thumbs up, while saying that the performance of the service in World War II was miraculous, as was the Army, as was the Marine Corps. But but that's that that is a that's a whole different story. And before we came on, can I ask one question about Tim's thing? Well, hold on, hold on a second. Before we came on, before you go on, before we came on, Tim said that he would leave World War II to us because he doesn't think our level of understanding of naval history is as his is. So <laughs> I just wanted to point out his condescending fuck attitude. Okay, and I, so, I believe I said I left it to you 
just to be a decent fella. And you said that that was because. So you're kind of imparting motive here, brother. It's a fallacy. My question is, you know, is that how you pronounce Kavit? Oh, it's not. It's Kavita, isn't it? Well, shit, because I, for years I've been reading that word. And I never say it in public because I was just okay. Hold on, to explain. Explain what you you're. Would hold on. Guys would break it off it my ass. Explain. Explain what you're talking about. The naval base uh, in the Philippines, C A V I T E, which I always thought was Cavite, but I also grew up thinking that the word huge and the word Hugi, which doesn't <laughs> exist, were two separate words that meant. And I never would say it out loud. What's this fucking Yugi thing? Because I knew I'd be, you know, ridiculed and castigated. And that's the same reason why I never, ever said the word Cavite or Cavite or Cavite. <laughs> now I don't care. <laughs> I have a feeling. You're absolutely correct. It's Cavite. I know that All from right. watching John Wayne films. I have a feeling <laughs> that I'm going to be able to tell you definitively how that's pronounced here in a couple hours. The, um, um, well, how about what say ye in terms of the most significant event in in accomplishment of the United States Navy yeah. in 246 years? Yeah, I, I uh, on the strategic arc of the Navy, World War II. Well, let me hey, let me ask you a question. So, when you go to the Naval Academy, do you is there a class like Naval History 101? Um, not specifically. Uh, in your, so everyone has got to take history. Well, this is whatever, 35 years ago. Uh, you had one history required course in your first year and there was naval history integral to that, but you learned a lot of your naval history as a plebe through required knowledge, which was called rates. So, you know, the plebe summary had a book. And there were things in there that you had to memorize. And then there were additional rates that were thrown out continuously. And then often when you screwed stuff up, uh, people would assign you additional knowledge requirements, which were typically had to do with Navy history uh, or Navy technical stuff. So, so you learned a lot of it. Yeah, under, the, under the broad heading course. of knowledge. I remember being a candidate and we had a thing called the candidate regs, right, at OCS. And I remember getting admonished by one of my sergeant instructors, study your knowledge, right? And I thought, hmm, I thought knowledge was something gleaned from life. How would I actually study that, right? I wonder if I should ask it out loud. And then I thought, you should. No. No, 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 no. It was similar to if you wanted to ever hear fear, absolute fear. In an organization, one of our sergeant instructors used the word ask, right? <laughs> yeah. And so they were, we were getting our ass chewed outside of the chow hall at Brownfield. And I think his name was Harrison. And he said, if you have a question, you shouldn't be afraid <laughs> to, to Asked that question, and somebody, and some idiot snickered, <laughs> and he froze. And I remember thinking, "Oh my God! All I want to do is eat dinner, right?" 
And and the the other sergeant instructor says, "What the fuck was that?" And I'm like, "Please God, please." I'm like, "Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, please God, let this pass over, <laughs> let this pass over us, please, please." And then he said, "Oh, I'll tell you what that was. One of these college fucks just fucking snickered because you said ask like axe." And then he said, "Oh, so I'm the stupid motherfucker." We're going to find out who the stupid motherfuckers is. Who fucking laughed? And nobody fucking... And he's like, all right, stand by. Take your ponchos off. Roll your poncho up. Put it in your right cargo pocket. And I'm just thinking, oh, fuck. Right? We do that. Oh, tent. Right? Face. Forward march. Double time march. And do you remember that hill at OCS that had the concertina? And you crawled up it? And then you crawled yep. down it? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Imagine that in about mid-November, right? It, in about, at about, like, I don't know, 1700, we did that motherfucker for about a half hour. And we came back. <laughs> and, and we get in front of the chow hall again. And, and he had us, like, wipe our, our shit off right before we got there. And he looked at us and he said, Now, before I file you in the chow, think about this. Who's the stupid motherfuckers now? <laughs> so my, you know what? The beauty of the Marine Corps, right? Please. Yeah. And then that, that, oh my God, no, did that just happen? So anyway. You're right, Mac. When you're a Marine and you go to the jump school, the Black Hats, the Army guys there, they fuck with you about Chesty Puller. So the first week's ground week, you know, I told them, they make me say shit about Chesty Puller, so I told them factual shit. By the second week, I was getting sick of it, so I started just making up shit. And so the second week, I told them Chesty Puller shot a tiger with his forty-five in India, and they're like <laughs> amazed. And uh, and so I went on in that vein for the next two. And at the end of of, of jump school, you get your wings all and shit, and they're like saying, "Hey, all that shit about Chesty Puller, I never knew." I go, "Well, the story starting with the tiger story." And then with the whorehouse story, that's all just shit I made up. <laughs> but yeah, that's yeah. awesome. All right, we digress. William, the greatest feat of the United States Navy in naval history is? Yeah, I went at the strategic level. It's, it's World War II, clearly. Uh, you think of where the service was at the beginning. Uh, a sort of ragtag squadron uh, in the Western Pacific, which got destroyed in relatively short order. Right. Um, significant part of the fleet sunk at Pearl Harbor. The enemy had better aircraft, better torpedoes, better night fighting. Um, we were on the cusp of some technological innovations, radar being a big one, that we didn't quite understand, particularly at the senior leadership level. And then you see how they took that organization and steamrolled the Japanese. And yeah, a lot of it was logistics, right? As Napoleon said, uh, quantity has a quality all its own. So we had quantity. But they built a service in an ethos that was a warrior service uh and they they took you know john paul jones and stephen decatur and they 
they put it into the DNA of the entire service. Uh, and so it's, a, it's just an unbelievable, phenomenal uh, accomplishment. Um, and and uh, there's, as Jeff said, and you know, I think Tim said, there's just so many thousands of unbelievable episodes of, of great accomplishment by the Navy, by individuals in the Navy, um, but at the at the great strategic level, that's the greatest impact they've had on history. Because I don't think as expansively as Will does, I will give you an episode, all right, and then we'll do a second round, all right, and we can all convert to if if you did episode, you could do large arcing history like Will, right, with with you know he he reaches into all the nuance of the Navy and says World War II. Like, no fucking kidding. Well, nice going. But anyway, mine... I think strategically, I can't help it. I know. You're a big, big Blue Arrow guy. Okay, so small Blue Arrow, um, to me, uh, the landing at Inchon, um, not, not just not the landing specifically, but the fact that the Navy looks at that and says, yeah, we can fucking do that, right, is, is to me one of the great... I mean, one of the, again, talk about taking something right United States and our Korean allies and anybody else who was down there in the Pusan perimeter and then in short order the perimeter gets reinforced and essentially stabilized and then we like throw the mother of all left hooks of all time um at the port of Incheon and it's done by the it's, it's pulled up by the United States Navy and when when you look at the tide data at Incheon, um, when you look at the tide data for Incheon, it's, I mean, it's absolutely stunning, right? It's absolutely stunning that, that they say, yeah, we can do that. And, and we can do it with, 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 first of all, the landing, we can do it with the logistics. Um, we can, we can do this. And it's a, it's a, it's huge, huge, um, intestinal fortitude check and confidence and 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 again i will uh, now dovetail i'm 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 borderline brilliant today but anyway i will now dovetail this off will right what the navy accomplished in world war ii the confidence that it operated with right that we can go anything anywhere and do anything because we have done that is reflective in my opinion in the whole attitude about Inchon in that look at it and it wasn't like oh geez the tides are too high uh, it's like okay how do we solve this shit because we can because we're the navy we do this shit all the time and so i think for a lot of different reasons Inchon, um it's a and it's strategically it changes the uh, the outcome of the korean war so it's not that episodic and small time as i initially kind of teased so don't pat yourself on the back. It's no, a little bit, that little bit of brilliance right there. Um, all right, let's go around the second time. If you, if you, what's number two on your list, Jeffrey? Well, I'll, I'll wick down to an episode that always impressed me. When I was going through scuba school, they had all these pictures on the walls, of guys with medals of honor and uh, Navy crosses, and none of them were for combat. These were guys who were involved. They were divers. Second class, well, actually, before they even called it second class divers, but divers who, who, uh, who started the salvage operation 
on the USS Squalus in 1939, which was the first of the S-class, S-1-class submarines, and uh, which w- was what we used throughout World War II, diesel sub. And uh, some there was some kind of mistake made in their Virgin uh, crews where one of the uh, one or two of the sailors counterintuitively did what they used to do with the old boats and it flooded the compartments and the submarine sank like in minutes. And so they lost about half the compartments and the crewmen were trying to, you know, it was a desperate uh, attempt to get from the flooded compartments to the sealed compartments. And bottom line was 25 of the sailors didn't make it into the sealed compartments. So the CO of the ship and like 33 guys were stuck there in the bottom 243 feet down, which is eight atmospheres which means uh, a tremendous pressure on the, uh, the hull of the ship from the, you know, the pressure of the ocean. So there's this guy in the Navy named Commander Momsen, and he's invented a bunch of shit, like the Momsen lung and stuff that helps you save your ass when things go to shit in water, right? And uh, he was down in the Naval Shipyard in Washington, D.C., and he flies up on a seaplane um, to as uh, close to Portsmouth, uh, you know, naval station there in New Hampshire. And meanwhile, they're looking for a bunch of divers who can execute this thing. And uh, the closest ones are New London, Connecticut. So they put together this convoy and they get police escort and they blast up to uh, New Hampshire. And uh, they get there and they got no time to even prepare. As a matter of fact, the, the Squalus went down and its, its sister sub couldn't find it. And so these guys were setting up little uh, out of the toilet of the ship on the bottom of the ocean that was salvaged. They were setting up little balloons. They'd, they'd put smoke in a balloon and then send it up. And it would, so little puffs of smoke were coming out. They were ingenious. It's amazing the pressure of agonizing death, what that does to your ability to focus on a problem. Bottom line is these, these 50 or so uh, divers volunteered to go down in a bell, the Momsen Bell, actually the McCann Bell, he went partners with another naval officer, Lieutenant Commander McCann. They invented this bell that could be fitted into the uh, the top hatch of the S-1 um, submersible. Really, technically, they're not called submarines. They're called submersibles. And so they never worked it. They never tried it before. It was, seven, it was 12 feet high and 7 feet wide. And so they went down, and they, they got these guys out in, like, four trips. And they all got most of the guys got some kind of decompression sickness doing it, which they knew they would get. Now they talk about waterboarding and they talk about being drawn and quartered, but there's few types of agony worse that have in the bends or some form of decompression sickness. If we could figure out a way, if the Spanish could have figured out a way during the inquisition to put that on somebody, they would have got a lot more people confessing. They were, you know, you know, heretics, because it's awful. And these guys, knowing that, did it. And uh, so that always impressed me, especially when I juxtapose against some of the incidents we've had recently, most notably a BHR, you know, salvage-type operations. These guys, were well, they, well, first of all, there's loss of life, which they, they saved all 33 of those guys. Uh, they couldn't do anything for the 25 crewmen who had drowned already or been crushed already. But uh, they did it. And uh, that's amazing to me. My hat's off to the fucking squids on that one. <laughs> Who knew you were such a naval historian, for the love of God, the nuance of that. Um, Tim, how about you, the second one? 
Um, I, I think my second biggest achievement would be the adaptive behavior of the service. Wait, 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 wait. Not your second biggest achievement, but the second one on oh, your I'm list, sorry, right? Second, I'm sorry. Because yeah, if we were to start talking about your achievements, we'd be here for a while. I don't think that's true. But at any rate, thank you. <laughs> the, uh, the, but the adaptive behavior the surface Navy showed in taking the battleships, which had become obsolete, not that the British or the Japanese Navy would acknowledge that, and recognizing their utility was strictly re was restricted to shore battery bombardment in support of the Marines. And that came after they sent, uh, I remember we were talking about Tarawa, and uh, the commanding admiral had sent a guy from uh, from the Hawk's hometown who knew who knew the Hawk. He sent him a home, sent him ashore on day one with a camera to take pictures of the of of, of the effects of the naval gunfire. And it was from those type of efforts that they rapidly recognized they needed to reconfigure their their invasion fleets and put the battle battleships up front specifically to do nothing but shore bombardment. And although it didn't exactly work out that well in Okinawa and Iwo Jima, due to the complexity of the problems, they they were they were masterful at taking out identified positions once once uh, the fighting begun. To, to include going around Iwo Jima and getting that Suribachi from the from the reverse slope. I mean, they they were ballsy, and at the same time, Navy uh, uh, destroyers and uh, des Navy destroyer captains were fearless as far as, as running right into the ten fathom line and, and turning loose. And and I think that that adaptive behavior is remarkable because it's statistically rare in military history. You don't find a lot of in stride adaptive behavior in military organizations, which tend not to adapt quickly, statistically. I just wanted to make that point. In stride adaptive behavior, statistically verifiable. I, ha I, I haven't run a Nova on it yet, but I'm thinking about trying to figure out how to do that. Because I know I got the I got the software for it, but statistically it, it is it is rare to find that type of adaptive behavior at the surface level, at the service level. I thought ANOVA was some sort of um, um, thing that happened in outer space. It was like a Stephen Hawking thing, or uh, who's the other guy? Carl Sagan. I thought that was uh, no, the, no, no. I'm, I'm I'm just I'm just talking about a statistical hierarchical. Um, oh, I forget what the term is. I'm sorry. I'll try to be. Uh, I'm trying to sound like a guy who's taken statistics in college, and my uh, vocabulary has eluded me uh, for some ridiculous reason. But no, it's just one of those things that you run. What you're trying to do is get a percentage of how much a specific thing, the variable you're looking at, what is its effect on the overall thing? So you want to look for adaptive behavior. You're probably going to end up with a score around 0 0.06. No, 0 0.01, where one is perfect adaptive behavior. Zero is no adaptive behavior. I think we're about 0 0.1, 0 0.2 historically. That's my that's my sneaking suspicion wow. on, this, on this topic. Wow, that's impressive. I don't know if any of it's true, but it is nonetheless. It sounds like Jeff Kenny talking shit about Jesse Puller at jump school. But uh, <laughs> well done, well done. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't get harassed like that at jump school because I went through as an officer. It was a little bit little bit easier. There you go. There you go. Yeah. William, how about you? Yeah, you know something that always impressed me that doesn't necessarily get a lot of press is uh navy submarines in world war ii and the damage that they did uh, uh 
interestingly, they took high casualties yeah. as well. They were really out on the edge of the empire. And I always remembered uh, one particular incident. Um, so the, the captain's name was John Cromwell. He was like the uh, submarine squadron commander, but was actually deployed. His flag was deployed on board a submarine uh, outside of truck. And so they had put submarines in action. I think that they were screening for uh, preparation for terror, as a matter of fact. And uh, so they pushed forward, and this was like the major Japanese naval installation uh, in the Pacific at that time was a truck. Uh, and they ended up getting involved in a melee. Um, and so they were getting depth charged. And this guy, Cromwell, as the squadron commander, uh, knew the entire battle plan for, I think, the assault, but also for future operations. And I think that he may have been privy at that point to the idea that we had broken Japanese naval codes, which was pretty rare uh, for people to know. But I sense that he did um, know what I know about that now. And so the submarine that he's on gets depth charged and uh, he cannot have this ship be captured with him on it because um, he knows too much. But he doesn't want to doom them to, uh, to just trying to ride this out. So he orders the submarine to the surface so that the crew can get off. And then he rides it to the bottom because he can't afford to be captured. Uh, so a guy that knows his duty and understands the sacrifice and willingly uh, does that to prevent potential catastrophe. Wait a minute. He, wait a minute. Was was this was the sub gonna was it gonna be captured? Uh, they apparently had been depth charged to, to the point Got it. Uh, that he didn't think they could escape it. So he didn't want to just try and ride it out. Uh, he ordered them to the surface to try and be able to get the crew off. But then he took it back down to the bottom. Um, John P. Cromwell, posthumous Medal of Honor, um, you know, gunfighter. Riding in a freaking submarine. Wow. Um, I would say my favorite submarine. What's the name of the submarine that would just, just like, the guy loses his mind. The only thing he didn't do was attach a bayonet to the nose of the sub off the coast of Japan. What yeah. The, do you remember that yeah. one? I mean, he's. Something fish, yeah. The what? Something fish. It was it was a fish, I think, at the last name. In the Sea of Japan, you're talking about. Oh, when they went yeah. into the sky. You, you yeah. read this guy. He landed. He actually landed people on, on the mainland. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were like they were blowing up uh, railroad bridges, right? There and and so yeah, they they would he you know he'd land guys in in small boats. They'd go in, they'd rig you know demolitions to to train trestles, and then they'd blow the blow the shit out of them. They'd get on the boat, they would watch it. This guy went up and down the coast of Japan, just whooping the shit out of everybody, and uh, that must have been when they when they drove back into Pearl Harbor. 
with all their brooms flying and shit yep. like that. That must have been a good <laughs> feeling, man. That oh, must yeah. have been that. So that's yeah, my favorite the sub, sub story. The submarine stuff's always fascinating. I, I gotta g- agree with Will and and you on that one. That is so many great um, stories these guys did. You know, uh, for instance, wait a um, minute, wait a minute. We don't have Johnny time to Kane's, wait. We Johnny don't have time for you to Kane's go. Ag- we don't have time for you to go again. Okay, okay. I know you're good. Okay. What you're gonna do? You're gonna fucking hijack this thing again. My second one would be on a grander scale, um, and that is this. Uh, and that is the contribution of carrier aviation uh, to the defense of the nation uh, that begins being developed post-World War One, and is with us to today. Um, I had the privilege of being um, a part of ship's company on an American aircraft carrier. And I will tell you this, man, when you show up off the coast of some nation, it's a big deal. I mean, we're used to them, but um, we we were off the coast of North Korea. And, you know, North Korea is essentially at general quarters because of this, the ability of the United States to project power. And when you see it in motion and you look at its development and all the different things you see on an aircraft carrier, um, it's absolutely uh, amazing. And what it did for power projection um, and the ability of the United States to project power anywhere in the world at any time. Uh, in short order, is is pretty amazing. So to me, um, if I were to broaden the lens a little bit, it would be that uh, the the development of of carrier aviation, um, and it's still the ongoing development, which I believe is is in short order going to be, you know, dominated by by drones, which will be cheaper to manufacture, which will be expendable. In, in the first phases of a conflict, and uh, it will change the way that uh, that um, combat aviation is conducted because you don't have to worry about the pilot being lost or captured or whatever. The, um, you know, the a, a great thing about the American aircraft carrier, too, is that we routinely, in bad weather at night, launch and recover. There's nobody in the world after... 100 years of aircraft carriers. There's nobody in the world that can do what we do. Not even close. And for us, it's completely routine. Oh, it's night and the weather's bad? Yeah, so do flight ops. We we were off the coast. We were up in the Sea of Japan and, and uh, supporting Team Spirit. And we're launching, you know, we launch our fighters. Now we launch the A6 package, which is essentially tanking the fighters. Okay. And, uh, a Marine A-6 gets launched, um, and I think that they hadn't released the emergency brake. And I thought I think it was a, a light failure in the cockpit because they thought they had, but it actually didn't function. So when they get launched, one of the landing gears gets blown out. And so they launch. And so I don't know what I'm doing, but all of a sudden, you know, you, you have uh, – you know, the, the, the TV that's on that shows the flight deck all the time, right? And that used to be on in, in, in where I worked in, in my office with the C, my CO. And all of a sudden you see them rigging the barricade, right? The mesh barricade kind of thing uh, on the flight deck. And you look like, are they training? What the fuck are they doing? And like, you know, and then you like pick up the phone, you call somebody up in the weapons department. Hey, what's going on, on the flight deck? Or the rig in the barricade, you know, an A6, you know, it lost its landing gear. And you're in the, the the Pacific Ocean in the winter and it's heavy seas 
and that thing's pitching like a son of a bitch at night, and there's an A6 guy driving around up there that's going to hit that thing. And his last, his captain by the name of McNally, his call sign is Rand, okay? And so you're watching that thing on TV, and um, he he sticks the landing, too. And this thing comes skidding across the flight deck, hits that net, right? And then it cartwheels kind of up, not vertically, but but um, maybe at about 70 degrees, higher than 45, not quite 90. And, and I'll tell you this. Um, Still, I mean, still, I'll never forget it. This thing hasn't settled. It serves fuck not safe. And you have sailors running, right, to the airframe, right, to get their hands. You have firefighting guys running out there. You have, you know, purple shirts and green shirts, maintainers, guys who work on the flight deck. And they're, I mean, they're running to the to the aircraft to to get them out of there before something bad happens. They got to crank the cockpit open at this point on all the rest of that shit. And you're just watching it, and you're just going, "Holy shit, man!" And then I see him either later that night in the wardroom or the next morning, and I said, "Holy shit, Rand!" I said, "What were you thinking about?" And he said, "Nothing." He said, "I didn't have time." He said, "You know, we're." You know, I was just, you know, flying the plane and, and getting ready to do that. And uh, he said, so I, I really wasn't thinking anything when I did it. I said, no kidding. And he said, yeah, but when I got into my stateroom, I threw up in the sink. <laughs> he said, I threw up in the sink. He said, I bet he, he said, he said, you know, because then I realized, you know, that um, if I miss that thing, he said, I'd, I'd be dead right now. Because there's no fucking way that if that thing skids off the flight deck, I'm getting out of it. And, uh. So he said that was a little sobering, Mac. But I said, "Well, congratulations, man. That was that was that was awesome." So, yeah, carrier aviation, man. Hey, as we end this thing before we get to what we're reading, um, I, I'm sure you guys probably had a similar experience that I had yesterday. It's after talking about the investigation of the Somerset, um, um, whether people spoke to you about it or uh, or you had time to reflect. I want to go around once. Um, any residual thoughts relative to that discussion based on 24 hours or so to reflect on it? Jeff? Um, I, I have to tell you, it's just, uh, I, I, I whenever I think about the findings 138 and 137 or, or whatever, where he says, I didn't know it was my responsibility as the amphib ship commander to be involved in the amphib amphibious recovery of uh you know of the marines just uh i mean that's basically what he's saying it's astounding you know it's astounding that the guy when you when you go through all we've been talking about this last uh podcast those the the flip side of the heroes and coin was if you were judged uh you know to be at at fault for something even if it wasn't really clear the fact that you were in charge and something shitty happened on your watch meant you were responsible and you paid. And, and uh, that's one of the things that kept that ethos that was developed from John Paul Jones and Decatur, Stephen Decatur, like Will talked about, up and then really honed to a fine degree during the Second World War. And it's a harbinger of uh, things have to change back. Uh, that that one, that thing that him, him saying that and him being allowed to, you know, to uh, to not be admonished, it appears for that. Tim, that's something about... that jumps out of me about that. All right, Tim, how about you? Any residual thought? 
Yeah, way, way deep in that investigation as the Marines who successfully got out of that track started popping to the surface unconscious, the BLTXO emerges and dives in, grabs one and commences CPR, which means he right. must have been on one of those tracks, which means back at the objective area when things started to kind of un unwind as far as who's going where, what's broken, how they're going to do this, the XO at no point asserted himself in that in that in that environment in that situation, and we're talking payment. This is the first. This is where I would think if the XO was tagged along with this thing, he's adult supervision. I don't know of any battalion XO I ever worked for who would not have at the very beginning of this thing taken charge when you had broken down tracks and we're going to straggle the tracks back in. It's not like he's there to evaluate the company commander. I would think at that early stage in the game. So I, I, I don't know where the hell he came from and why he didn't insert himself into this process before because it wasn't hard for an experienced officer to see things were falling apart based on the decisions made about well, what tracks were going. But how would he know, Tim? Unless he was in a TC hatch, none of those other grunts. No, 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 no. I had any idea what's going on. No, no, no. I'm I'm talking on the beach, Jeff. I'm talking before we start going out. Before no, I think, think he was he on a rib. jumped in the water. You know, I don't know where he was. You're right. I think he was on a rib. Okay, if he was on a rib, then it's I didn't I don't know see... where he came from from that. Right. Rib. Yeah. If if he was on a rib, that's one thing. Good on him. He's a good guy. If he was embedded in that unit and didn't step up when things started to unwind, that's a misunderstanding of the purpose of the payment. He should have. Yeah, I think that guy might deserve to be commended for his. Attempts at rescue, you know. Oh, if, if he was on a rib and recognized how bad this was right off the bat, then he is a a, a world class hero. But you don't get. Will you, you, no you, you tell everybody what a rib is? Uh, a rib would be a, 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 a one of the small boats the Navy uses in order to put together. It's got hard sides, outboard motors. They can launch them out of the well deck. Uh, it was one of the rescue boats. Uh, there were several there. Um, on scene from several different Navy ships. I just did not think they arrived at the same time when Marines were popping up from the surface. I, I it was got to the distinct impression the XO came off a track and brought that Marine back to a track and gave him CPR on top of the track. Oh. And that's that's confusing to me. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, residual thought? Yeah, I had two things. Number one, um, I think it's probably on day two at the Naval Academy they drill you on your five basic responses. Yes, sir. No, sir. Aye, aye, sir. I'll find out, sir. And no excuse, sir. And you learn no excuse, sir. And and that's that's a preamble to everything. You are responsible for everything the unit does and fails to do. And so. Uh, you know, the CO of the ship at sea is supposed to be God. And there's a lot of prerogatives that come with that, but there's also accountability. Everything your unit does or fails to do, no excuse, sir. Um, and so we didn't, we don't see that accountability here. And, you know, it's, it's interesting the, the, with what Mike Moraletto sent in Last time, the CO is asleep in his sea cabin and they have a collision and he gets court-martialed and found guilty because although he gave very clear instructions to his bridge crew on what they were supposed to do, they didn't carry out his instructions. So he got clipped for not properly training them. 
Um, and you would think that maybe maybe that level of scrutiny and accountability would lead to a sort of risk averse force. Um, maybe, uh, or it could lead to a force, you know, that's the John Paul Jones tradition. I wish to have no connection with any ship that does not sail fast, for I intend to take her into harm's way. And, you know, 1989, USS Spartanburg County, LST, we did a change of command in Turkey of the ship. <laughs> the first operation we did is we went down to Egypt as a single ship. Egypt in 1989, remember the Berlin Wall hasn't fallen yet. Egypt is not in the arms of the West. And so we were going to do an exercise that was being supported by the Egyptian army. It was single ship just by ourselves. Well, the Egyptian army owns from the high water mark inland. The Egyptian navy owns from the where the water is. And the Egyptian coast guard actually owns the strip in between. And so trying to get charts for that part of the beach was almost impossible. And I think we're doing the exercise in 1989. I think we had a 1950 something chart and it showed all these reefs. So the CO comes on board in Turkey and 10 days later, he's sitting off the coast of Egypt and it's foggy. And he's got to launch AAVs to get ashore, but there's reefs out there. And the reefs apparently went out to about seven or 8,000 yards. Seven or 8,000 yards is too far to launch AAVs when it's foggy out. So this guy puts a sailor on the bow of the LST with a lead line that's doing hand, <laughs> hand by hand determining what the depth is as he maneuvers this ship that he's been the CEO of for 10 days to get it through these uncharted reefs so that he can launch the AAVs so that they can safely transit ashore. I can't yep. remember the guy's name. He's a fucking yeah. hero. Yeah, he's a, he's a big, tall, heavy guy, remember? I do, but it's yeah. like, so... He's so pretty good. Is he, he didn't talk too much. He, he, but he was good. There is ultimate accountability, but you can also imbue the service with a sense of mission. And again, that was one little thing that nobody in the Navy cared about, heard about, did anything. If that ship would have bumped into any of that coral, that guy would have gotten fired in a heartbeat. It didn't matter to him. He, that was his mission. And he went and did it. So the Navy could do that. You know, do you, you remember, Will, he was prepared to beach the fucking, because uh, you could, you could, if you can, if you, reefs, you know, notwithstanding, if he could maneuver it in there, he was prepared to uh, put the front ramp down, which I've never seen before. And yeah. then, uh, and the AVs come up out of the well deck and go down that way if he, if he couldn't get to where it was safe to launch the, uh, you know, if it launched the uh, AVs the normal way we did it. Yeah, he was, uh, that was really something. Yeah. And I, I would say the other the other thing that I really been thinking a lot about is um, and again, this is going to come out in General Mundy's investigation. There's a long discussion about swim quals, AV dunkers, helo dunkers, etc. 
And um, if if we drive ourselves because we're gonna we're gonna either rewrite or completely reinforce these regulations and requirements about helo dunkers and AAV dunkers, then the Marine Corps should just fold its flag. Um, the requirements to get people into a helo dunker and an AAV dunker means that we will become nothing but the U.S. Olympic swim team. Uh, and we won't do anything else. And those things are band-aids uh, on top of processes, and they're being used by people that fundamentally have no idea. If, if that AAV crew would have executed properly, those Marines would have gotten out of that vehicle. They could have transferred to a safety boat that should have been there or another Amtrak that should have been alongside. And if they couldn't transfer immediately and got put in the water, they could have popped their flotation device because they wouldn't have been wearing all their gear and at the service or flotation device would have kept them. But there is going to be discussion about they didn't have all the right swim quals. They didn't all have all their AAV dunker quals. And, and people, what I mean by this is you have to have a certain level of swim qualification to be able to go in and take the dunker and the the, the, the helo dunker, the AV dunker. Most Marines, when they come out of boot camp, aren't remotely close to that swim qualification. So are we going to say that only top-notch swimmers can join the Marine Corps? All right, we're never going to recruit that. Are we going to say that, well, if you're not swim qualified, then you can't go on an AV or helicopter? Okay, that means non-swimmers are non-deployable. Or are we going to spend all our training time teaching people to swim so that we can go through some other mechanical device and don't worry about stuff like shoot, move and communicate. So that stuff is going to come out in the Monday investigation. I think it's going to be, if that's what we are led to, um, that's the wrong lesson to learn from this investigation, but I fear it's one that we're going to learn. And have you ever been in a healer dunker? Well, well, Jeff, I have not. Uh, yeah. And I, I have. Yeah, I have too. Yeah. I, uh, as a, as a rifle company commander, I saw my, my helo company commander struggle with it and never successfully get his company trained. So as a battalion uh, landing team S3, everyone was really excited about helo dunker. And I told him, you got one chance and that's it. And then we're actually going to do stuff that'll keep people alive in combat. Yeah. And that was a risk I was willing to take. No, no, I went, I went through the helo dunker, yeah, and it's, it's not a panacea. It's, it's a joke. It's, it is, in no relationship is it simulating what you're going to have to deal with in a downed helicopter wearing your gear. It is, it, it is a, it's just a skeleton. There's so many ways of popping out of that thing that it's a ridiculous exercise. I, I would disagree. I good. would disagree with you, Timmy. It might yeah. not exactly replicate it, okay? But what it does is it gives you experience right in some of the things that will happen to you so when they do happen to you you know hopefully you remember that training so i wouldn't say it's ridiculous it may not be you know what we want it to be all right 
but I don't think it's ridiculous training. No, I, that's a misstatement. I, I, I should have stuck with no panacea. It was just right. an awfully unchallenging evolution to somebody that's a competent swimmer is all I'm pointing out, and right. in no way replicated the forces involved, which I think it probably could if it wanted to. Got it. Um, the comment that's been in my head is the whole service in decline thing. And um, and you and you see it in motion in 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 the in in all of this. It starts with findings of fact thirty seven and thirty eight, right? And then it migrates to the fact that the Navy doesn't investigate this. It the, the investigation only comes about after the first he, public hearings, and they haven't conducted an investigation yet. And then all of a sudden they make this announcement along with the month, the second Marine Corps investigation that the Navy's now going to investigate it. Like, what the fuck, right? So they never investigated. Nobody's relieved, right? So, and, and again, as we've said repeatedly, everything, right, that ship does or fails to do is, is the responsibility of that, of that ship's commanding officer. And, and, and he's fundamentally ignorant about his own profession. He doesn't fucking know. And he's not relieved. He, he leaves that ship. I think they recently did a change of command. He leaves that ship, and he's never held accountable for the shit that he did. Pile on top of that, I would tell you, again, service in decline, the endorsements that you read. Somehow or other, you know, and, and again, I Mike Marletto booming in my head i think of ernest evans what would ernest evans say you know were were he head of the pacific fleet now and saw this Pfft. right and so you see the endorsements and the endorsements get their exacto knife out and they slice around this and they say you know the shit that they said in the endorsements and so if you want to see how you get in decline right you're not technically competent. You're not held accountable. And then the people above you accept that and they absolve you of that responsibility, that absolute responsibility of everything. And especially the, the commanding officer of the United States Naval Warship. Is that just another guy in, the, in, in a cog, another girl in a cog? No. They are the responsible individual out there, and we all know it. And so, and so we've talked about this in the past right operational excellence in decline with all these other things covid the border all these other competing you know um events and you see it in spades in this investigation you see it in in uh, and again i talked about just the operations of the ci of the cic right the way information and the things that you should do before anybody ever gets in a position to risk their lives there's a certain level of competence, and we talked about that. Jeff brought it up, right? There's things that fall inside the bell curve and outside the bell curve. And and the things that happened on that ship, right, in terms of the movement of information, are clearly outside the bell curve. They should not have been made, right? They should all, all of that stuff should have been worked out and practiced, right, before. And then, as I said, you have a commanding officer who doesn't know you have a Pacific fleet who doesn't conduct an investigation and doesn't relieve him. And then you have, you know, the endorsements that go on top of that to the CNO, you know, that essentially absolve them from that. So if you want to see what it looks like to be a service in decline, 
right, and a validation of that of that declining um, uh, culture and environment, you don't have to look any further than this investigation. It is absolutely pathetic. And so uh, a number of people, you know, reached out to me both last night and this morning or sent emails late last night. I read them this morning and they're just, they're, they're, they're disgusted, right? Because in, and and they said essentially what I said. And when I talked to, you know, Tim and Will, the first night we, we spoke about this, which was this, I was shocked at how bad it was the shit that I read. I was absolutely shocked and they weren't prepared for the things that we said yesterday. So that's what's in my head. All right, we've got about seven minutes. What are you reading now? Jeffrey, what are you reading? Real quick, a couple sides. I, I mute myself when I'm not talking because I think it helps you guys. But um, real quick, uh, when Will was talking about the submarines, that submarine I talked about that got to salvaged, it got salvaged and ended up sinking seven Japanese warships during the war. The USS Squalls. That's awesome. Uh, number that's, two. That's awesome. Number, yeah, number two. Um, uh, on October 8th, 2006, uh, a guy who uh, worked with me, uh, an advisor, Captain uh, Bob Sesher, was killed in uh, heat by a sniper. He's an advisor. There was a total of uh, 53 of us advisors in four teams. I was a senior guy, um, and uh, we ended up having about four or five KIA and then we had uh, about 20 WIA. So almost half of us were casualties by the time the, you know, January 2007 rolled around. And I was like the first one. Um, but uh, this guy Sessions, is artillery officer, uh, very good officer, very dedicated. And, uh, you know, he, he was killed on October 8th, which is by ironically the two year, two years later was the anniversary of or the, uh, the event in Ganjigal, uh, Afghanistan, where we lost four Marines there. But uh, hats off to Bob Sesher, uh, a very good artillery officer, a very good Marine officer. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and if anybody who knows him or, you know, if by the chance that somebody in his family's listening, you know, he was a good guy and we lost a good man. All right. Um, do you want to tell us quickly what you're reading? Yes. I'm reading a book called Red Stick One, which is a novel. And it's by my friend, Ken Kirkaby. And he wrote this book like about a, about 12 years ago. And then he wrote a sequel called Red Stick 2. And it's about a Marine uh, recon guy in Vietnam who, um, when the war's over, he becomes a game warden in Florida and he solves this crime. It's a good novel. It's a great novel, in my opinion. And Kirk's written about four novels. Uh, and he's also uh, written a bunch of uh, nonfiction books about things like hunting and so forth. He's an accomplished... Uh, you know, accomplished hunter who's hunted in Alaska and Africa. And uh, some of the stories are pretty harrowing. And I know he, he listens faithfully uh, most of the time. And I think he's communicated with you, Mac, on a yeah. couple of issues. Tell everybody, uh, tell everybody how, you, how, how you spell his name so people that want to look for his, his work, they can find it. K-I-R-K-E-B-Y. Kirkaby. Kirkaby. All right. From Bayonne, New Jersey, I think. There you go. Uh, Bayonne's own Kirk Kirkaby. The um, Timmy, what are you reading? Actually, from Manasquan. No, he's from Manasquan. I'm sorry. Oh shit! But he lived in Bayonne for a while when he worked on Wall Street. Of all things. But got anyway. it. Got it. All right, Timmy, what are you reading? 
I uh, picked up a book yesterday called On the Psychology of Military Incompetence. And this is uh, written by a, a, Brit, uh, uh, a British author by the name of Norm Dixon, who's rather famous in the psychiatric world for uh, uh, coming up with uh, uh, some th theoretical work. He's got lots of awards. He's heavily, he was a very highly thought of in the psychiatric community of England back in the 1960s when his book was written, but he also spent 10 years in the British Army from 1940 to 1950. So he's oh. not, he is familiar uh, with the military. And I must confess, I heard about this book on the Jocko Wilnick podcast yesterday because he read the uh, the introduction to the book, which I sent to all three of you because it's that good. So I'm I'm just now in the second chapter. Um, although it is British centric, obviously it's it it does it does it points out how unusual military excellence is historically. And he goes to great pains to point out that he's talking about failure, not success. He's not, you know, and uh, it is it is it is alarming. I, it is one of these things where you read it. It's like, oh, this is uh, this looks like a circle coming around again. But I, I think that if you all take the time to read that introduction, uh, you're going to be you're going to be interested in the, in the delving into this thing, too. And the guy writes well. He's funny in the dry Brit manner. Writes very well. William, what are you reading? I am reading a book called Tools and Weapons by a man named Brad Smith. The subtitle is The Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age. So this guy's a lawyer who's now the president of Microsoft. And he's talking about, um, you know, software and, and everything associated with it and the idea of tools and weapons, um, how it can be used, how we need to protect ourselves. And it's, it's actually quite interesting because, it, like it or not, you're involved with it. Uh, you can't help it. And uh, I didn't know a lot of the stuff that's in there. So it's a good book. Tools and Weapons by Brad Smith. And you didn't know a lot of the stuff that's in this book? That's saying a lot because we all know you as a uh, as a huge intellectual uh, uh, powerhouse in the Midwest. Well, remember, everything's relative. That's in the Midwest. <laughs> You do travel around the country. I mean, you do like that. That light shines often in New York, upstate New York. So I do. And you didn't know yeah, this stuff. That, that, my point was that that it's saying something when a man of such, you know, high intellectual capacity and accomplishment says I, things I didn't know. I was I was a bit stunned by that. Well, it's basically because of my age. Right, <laughs> my age and education came about before a lot of these things were invented. I so. See. Uh, I just took them for granted. I'm what they call a uh, a digital migrant, as all of us are, as opposed to a digital native, i.e., people that grew up in the digital age. So, yeah, but you were one of the first guys to figure out on those early word processors that you could make folders that you didn't have to have just a bunch of shits in there. No, you could put that stuff in folders and organize it. I remembered what the hell. I remember that. Is that true? Yeah. Hey, I mean, well, I I'll tell you what. He was dumping on us. If you could figure out, folders. if you can figure out folders, that is a special form of intellect, right there. No doubt. Oh, I mean, that was no doubt in my mind. Are you, are you just stuff. stalling because you haven't read a book in like six months and you don't want to talk about any books? I, I, I haven't. I don't. Re I don't read books anymore. It's not what I do. Right. What does Will have on his mat? I don't. <laughs> well. 
first of all, first of all, I would say that most, yeah, most of my, uh, most of my lauding of Will. Is sarcastic? Yes, certainly. Certainly. Good man. Certainly. That's what I'd say. Certainly. Mac, um, Mac can't help himself because I, the most popular part of the entire program is, what are you reading? That's true. That is not actually true, but Will clings to it like a like a dying man like a dying man clings to an like a dying man clings to an oxygen tube. What are you reading? Seventeen out of twenty-seven. That's pretty popular. There you go. There you go. On that note, it's not really what are you reading. It's the ball busting that comes with it. Exactly. That's exactly. (laughs) That's because ball busting is an appreciated skill. An art form, you can't do anything else. It's, it's like when we're at IOC instructors. Like, I don't know how good we are at teaching lieutenants tactics, but we sure are having fun. <laughs> we are, we, we, we are entertaining. Yes. Yeah. All, right. All right. I'm done with you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Have a great day, bro. Have a great day, everybody. On that note, cue the music. Thanks for listening today. Um, and thanks for listening every day and making All Marine Radio something that you do. Uh, so thank you. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, stick your hand out, change somebody's life. I will tell you this the vast majority of people that are really struggling on this planet don't have a serious mental illness, they're just getting their ass kicked by life, and you can be part of what changes their life. I know that because I do it all the time. So don't be afraid to stick your hand out and say, hey, man, can I talk to you? And then call me up, put me on speaker, and you and I will try to change somebody's life. So on that note, thanks for listening today. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Have a great day. If you're a member of the United States Navy, happy birthday this week. All right, you guys have work to do to get your culture back to where the nation needs you to be, right? A second Fat Leonard thing? Are you kidding me? The dust from the first one hasn't even settled. And as I said a little bit ago, right? Getting out the exacto knife and allowing somebody off the hook as the commanding officer of a naval warship Nine people are dead and you're fundamentally ignorant about your job in that whole process and you're somehow or other, you know, not culpable in all of that. That has never been part of the naval tradition, ever. Sends a bad message from a bad culture, right? That's got to get turned around. So happy birthday. Y'all got work to do. And on that note, have a great day. I'm out.